0: Good morning and welcome. How are you on this beautiful fall morning? Uh, Do we have any veterans here? Veterans Week is this week. Do we have anybody here that's veterans? Okay, we have one back there. Anyone else here? Thank you for your service. All right. And with that, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Uh, We come here to a very important conference that would take place um, in Jerusalem with the leadership. There was a very important question that needed to be answered. Would they adhere and stick with the law of Moses or would would it be uh, basically by the grace and mercy and redemptive work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Uh, we want to look at uh, verses 1 through C29. I guess you could also call this to conflict resolution. And we're told that a certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension... And dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem uh, to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, uh, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, uh, who believed, they rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up, and he said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God shows among us that by my mouth a Gentile should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered and saying, men and brethren, uh, listen to me. Simon has declared how God... Uh, at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, quoting Amos, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which was fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, and known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are trusting or turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, uh, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath, and then it pleased the apostles and elders, and with the whole church, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men, who were among the brethren. And they wrote this letter uh, by them, the apostles, the elders, and brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law. To whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, uh, who will also report the same things by word, by word of mouth. Uh, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things that are offered to idols, I- uh, idolatry is worship, uh, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality, and if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Father, we are so thankful for the grace Lord, that we have, Lord, that we don't feel we have to be perfect, that we don't have to work our way to heaven, that there isn't some to-do list, Lord, that we have to check off all the boxes in order to be saved. Lord, how glorious, how wonderful, how free. It is for whosoever will just to believe. To believe, to put our trust in you because, Lord, you have done the work for us. Lord, it was a work that no man could accomplish. No law could accomplish. But you could accomplish that. Lord, you could fulfill, and you did fulfill the law of Moses. Because of your perfections and the fact of who you were. You were the God-man. Walking among us, offering up your life, Lord, for us, becoming our substitute, and taking our punishment upon the cross. And thank you, Lord, for the blessedness that you give to us now, to anyone, to anyone who would so just simply, sincerely, Lord, put their faith, their trust in you, in the work that you've accomplished. And so, Lord, we thank you for this glorious, immeasurable gift of salvation and redemption. And Lord, we pray that as your people, that uh, we communicate that grace to a perishing world. That, that people, as they hear about Jesus Christ, as they hear about church, they wouldn't think it's all about the things that they have to do now, how they have to clean up their act, how they have to perfect themselves. Lord, thank you that you tell us to simply come. Come as we are. Come with all of our weakness, all of our sins, all of our problems, all of our baggage. And Lord, you, you'll take those, Lord. You'll take those because you died for for those things upon the cross. You absorb them in your holy being. And you give us, Lord, not only forgiveness, not only a new beginning, not only cleansing. Lord, you give us of your nature. So, Father, we thank you. And, Lord, we pray for anyone hearing this message, anyone here today, that, Lord, uh, if, if that is an issue, if that's their struggle, help them, Lord, we pray, just to make that simple yet incredibly profound decision to just give their hearts to you, Lord, to find freedom, to find blessing. For, Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, how a person relates to God is so important because how we relate to him indicates how we relate and convey God to other people. And so the issue here is, are we going to basically put the gospel in such a way where people believe they have to do all these things. And, and I think, if anything, that tends to drive people away because they realize that they cannot, in their own ability, live up to the law of Moses. I mean, there are 613 laws in the law of Moses. And of course, they're summed up. They're summed up for us in, in uh, the Ten Commandments. They, they sum up uh, the, the law was uh, was not only ceremonial. Uh, there, was a, there was a civic law. Um, and also, too, there was a, a, uh, a law, basically the moral law, the moral law, the civic law, the ceremonial. In, in all these things, the law, in a sense, was basically to keep them To keep them in line, and like Paul says, you know, know, Paul, who was very, very familiar with with all these things, he said it was a schoolmaster. It was a schoolmaster, basically, to bring us to Messiah, to bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also, too, uh, it was designed also to morally, it was to keep us within certain parameters, but no one um, was really saved under that particular system. Uh, Like we talked about maybe a few weeks ago, uh, faith came before the law, okay, We see faith in Genesis 15. Uh, We see that uh, established right there early on with Abraham, quote, the father of the faithful. It's always been my faith. And so the law had its purpose, but also, too, it had its great limitations. And the mistake of many was to think that it was an end in itself, uh, that we could simply, you know, by obedience to this external law, that we could keep it, we could do it. I can remember being a Boy Scout. Any Boy Scouts here? Any Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts? And I can remember, you know, the Boy Scout uh, oath of honor. And, uh, and the only part I can really remember, that, that, and I remember you had a quote and you had to memorize it, was the very last part, you'd be thrift, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent, okay? And I don't think I was any of those things. And uh, and I, and I remember thinking, how can I be a good Boy Scout? And one of the examples they gave, you know, was to help a little old lady across the street, but I couldn't find any little <laughs> old ladies crossing the street. Um, and, and, and the law, in a sense, you know, the, the, the law of Moses, in a sense, is sort of like that. Um, you know, we, 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 may, we may try our best, you know, to fulfill it. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is we're simply going to come short, and that's where the grace of our Lord and Savior comes in. Uh, it's not, you know, our relationship with God is not on a performance basis kind of a thing, and when when we begin to put it on that kind of performance basis, all of a sudden we find ourselves maybe lifted up in pride, we find ourselves maybe self-righteous, um, you know, kind of, you know, if you've ever been around, maybe that's been part of your own testimony or have been around somebody, you know, that's... Uh, really smug and self-righteous, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, people like that can be very insufferable because no one can measure up to their standard when they think that they've gotten to that place where they have simply arrived. And again, grace is simply this, it's the receiving of this free gift, this free gift of redemption through our Lord and through our Savior, and, and, and in a sense for the work of redemption. Uh, it 's it 's what he 's done for us he 's accomplished that now now, the question is sometimes people confuse these do we work well yeah we don 't work for our salvation, right? We work from our salvation, we work out of gratitude we work out of love, we work out of service for our Lord, but we 're not working for that and that 's one thing you 'll see about every cult, every religious cult out there. When you meet them, that's why sometimes they'll be knocking on your door, um, trying to convert you, and uh, um, their basis, you know, for their relationship with God is what they do, um, and uh, and it's, yes, it's important what we do, but again, we cannot earn. We cannot, you know, basically, you know, be good enough to earn salvation. It's a glorious and free gift, and we need to be able to communicate that, you know, there's... Um, a couple of different, different definitions, rather, of grace. You know, you've heard of the one, uh, the acronym, right? Grace, you know, God's, um, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense, okay? I think one of the best definitions is one that, uh, that I've uh, uh, discovered in the Scriptures, and it's in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. You don't have to turn there, just a couple, four verses here. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and, and it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, uh, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And also the grace of God is looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself himself. His own special people, zealous for good works. So yes, good works is a very important part of redemption, but it's, mere, but it's the mere fact that we have been gifted, we have been given redemption, and we work from that basis. We work out of love, we work out of, you know, just, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I discovered as a new believer is, just, well, what can I do for the Lord? You know, Paul the Apostle, you no know, sooner does he get saved, what's he say? Lord, what would thou have me to do? Uh, and you discover this in your own life because you want to serve him. You, you want to do something for the Lord. You want to impact. And that's just simply, I think, just a, a natural consequence of the Spirit of God coming into our lives and the manifestation of that grace, you know, that gift of grace, you know, in our lives. So this conference here is basically to establish that. There, there was confusion, there was some. And we'll see here, he tells us here certain men, and these men basically came out of Jerusalem. They were believers, they were well-intended, uh, but they were misguided. And, and it's basically about, you know, is is it really about, is religion always about observing certain traditions? Now, we all have certain traditions um, uh, and, and certain rituals, you know, uh, but they're not the things that save us. And again, these these believers, and they were Pharisees, they came out of that, Particular kind of a very structured uh, kind of a background, and you see, the th- the funny thing is is you know when you come to Christ, uh, we bring certain baggage. You know, we, you know perhaps uh, if maybe we grew up in a very legalistic tradition uh, of Christianity. You know, we're going to kind of relate to God in that way, and yet we get saved, and then the Lord begins to just sort of remove those things. You know, out of our life, it takes time. Howard Hendricks, interesting guy. Um, he says, uh, as a young man, uh, he was a dean and professor at, uh, th- at Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, he is the author as well of many different books. And uh, he says he grew up in a very, he said, he said, even for women, polishing their fingernails was enough to send them to hell. And he said he f- totally repudiated and rejected legalism in 1946. But he says, in 1982, I still find myself struggling with it. And it's kind of interesting sometimes how certain things kind of hang on. It's not only true of in a sense of legalism. It can also be true of certain kind of behavior, you know, uh, to our life before Christ. Uh, and, And particularly if you come to Christ at a later point in your life, uh, you may find there are certain things you maybe struggle and wrestle with, maybe leaving go of those particular things, but just allowing the grace of God to just sort of work, you know, um, you know, in our lives. And one of the, one of the one of His things, one of the things that grace does, it frees us. Uh, it frees us from wrong attitudes, wrong ideas. Um, not only just ideas in a secular sense, but sometimes we can, we can come to Christ with the wrong religious, you know, ideas. And God will wonderfully, you know, in time, that's why, that's why you have to, we have to be very careful sometimes. That can happen, I think, in Christian circles where uh, ministries and pastors want to perfect people. And you know something, one of the things that I've discovered, and a lot of people discovered, you know, you can't do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, amen? You know, that's His wonderful work where He, he works in us to, to, you know, to free us up, you know, to, to basically uh, to do His will uh, and, and to live in such a way where our lives are not encumbered you know, by what we would call baggage or the things that once maybe, you know, plagued our lives or controlled us in some kind of way. And so here, in verse 2, here comes Paul and Barnabas, and they have no small dispute and dissension discussion, you know, with these guys because, again, you know, these guys here, they had a deep background. You know, Paul was a rabbi, Okay. Um Barnabas was a levite so he may he was from the priestly tribe he may he may have been a priest he may have been part of that whole circulation of priests and going into Jerusalem and so forth uh, these guys had a deep understanding, and they understood the grace of Jesus Christ because, you know, in a sense, you know, Paul is, you know, that, 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 that uh, apostle, you know, to the Gentiles. And so uh, he sees it, he smells it right away. He realizes, man, you're trying to put these guys under the law. And so... Uh, uh, you know, again, they understood all the limitations of the law and, and the purpose of it all. It had a very distinct, important purpose. But again, that is fulfilled, that is fulfilled, you know, in the Messiah, in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And, and like he will say basically later on, the law was a prep school. It was a prep school to bring us, to lead us to the Savior and eventually what he would do. Now, verse 5 reveals who these men, these men are. Uh, they are from the sect of the Pharisees, and we, 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 we saw back in chapter 9, many of the priests came to the faith, uh, and many of the Pharisees. Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, we see his testimony, I think, over there in Philippians, um, and so basically they, they rise up, and, and this is what they're preaching, this is what they're telling everybody. It's necessary to go through this ritual Ceremonial thing, which was was necessary for every male Jew, that on the eighth day that they would simply they would have to be circumcised. And the idea is, yes, you can come to Messiah, uh, but you have to go through this first. You know, it's it's Jesus plus. It's not Jesus alone. It's not faith alone. It's Jesus plus this. And I think we have to be very careful. Uh, sometimes we can go in certain circles, and it's Jesus plus. Okay. Um, yeah, you can be saved, and you can, you can be a, f- you know, a fully mature Christian, but you have to have Jesus plus this translation of the Bible, okay? And, and things of that particular nature, just adding something on, some ritual, you know, some particular tradition. And all churches have traditions, and all tradition, you know, is not bad, okay? But, but you have to realize it doesn't save anybody, Okay, I mean, we in Calvary Chapel we're a relatively new movement, 50 years old. But the fact of the matter, we have, we have our traditions, don't we? We we have our certain traditions. We have to make sure that these are biblical traditions. They're not extra biblical tra- traditions. And that's what happens sometimes as churches get into that kind of thing, in a sense that you know, look look at all you today. Where where men? Where's your where's your where's your white shirt and your tie and your jacket? And some of you guys need a haircut for goodness sakes. Okay. And, uh, and we're going to pretend none of you are wearing jeans, okay? And, and so when you begin to just sort of, you know, uh, put those things out there in order to, you know, in order to be, you know, a fully orbed, you know, uh, spiritual mature believer, you get in trouble. And uh, I can, I can, I've been in churches where I've walked in churches years ago, and I got just sort of the stare up and down. I wasn't wearing the uniform of the day, okay, kind of a thing. And you know what that does it 's like, can sinners come in church? I think it drives people away, and I think we need to be very careful of that when we make it Jesus plus this, that, you know, or the other thing and again, here the Pharisees were they 're rigid they 're opinionated they 're inflexible, and um, you know they're they 're legalistic or maybe one of one or two of those things or maybe all of those particular things. And uh, the fact is that um, I have met some present-day Pharisees. Um, they, they may talk about grace, but uh, they practice, they tend to practice law, and I think we need to be careful of that. So this, uh, looking at verse 6, this conference had huge implications. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. There had been much dispute. Peter rose up, and Peter's going to speak here. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. Now remember that in, in Acts chapter ten. Remember, and Peter, Peter and Cornelius—they both needed a vision, because they, you know, as a, as a Gentile, Cornelius, he was a proselyte to Judaism, and and he knew his place. He he understood. Um, that was there was a separation, you know, between even proselytes and, you know, those who were Orthodox Jews. And so, um, you, the Holy Spirit is basically telling Peter to go to to, to Cornelius's house, and he needs a vision because he ain't going to go. He's very kosher. He, he's very Orthodox. Yes, he knows the Lord. He was the chief apostle. Um, and, and again, at that point, you realize for the first number of years, Christianity was just simply a Jewish group of guys and gals. And um, and they needed that prompting and that directing of the Holy Spirit, you know, visions actually to get them, uh, you know, just to get them out of Jerusalem. There had, be a, there had to be a persecution to get the church out of Jerusalem because they were very comfortable there. And it was a blessed thing to know the Lord and to see God working in their midst. And certainly they had a mission. They had a mission in their own country within Jerusalem, within Israel proper uh, because no doubt they wanted to see, even after the rejection of the Messiah nationally, they wanted to see, or in hoping that perhaps, and of course, you know, Jesus, um, you know, as he as he departed and as he left, uh, they assumed that uh, he's going to maybe come back just in a generation, uh, maybe after they do the mopping up operation and, and lead the nation to Christ and that sort of thing. And of course, God had another plan. Anyway. Um, He makes no distinction between us and them, us Jews and them Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. Uh, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke? Um, In other words, a yoke of bondage. That's what the law was. It it was very heavy, very burdensome, because people could not fulfill it, no matter how much they tried. And I'll tell you what, the Pharisees, they really tried. They really tried. They were even tithing their, their herbs, I mean, uh, you know, Jesus at one point said about the Pharisees, because their lives were, you know, their lives, they, they were just human beings, but they were trying to perfect themselves. He said, you guys, you, you, you basically, um, uh, you, you, what's it, you, uh, at a gnat, at a gnat. What? You strain at a gnat. You strain at a gnat, and you swallow a camel, okay? In other words, the, just the inconsistency of their lives, and the fact is they thought, they tried, and they thought that they could perfect themselves. You know, by you can't perfect yourself by adhering to some external law. You don't have power, and, and God never designed the the Mosaic law for that kind of thing. Again, it was a it was a prep school. Uh, it was designed to keep the Jewish people um, within parameters until Messiah came, and that's the mistake sometimes that even Christian ministries make is when they try to incorporate the law. They try to bring the law in. Uh, and it basically, it just, you know, Paul will say this, he said, the Spirit will set you free, the Spirit will give you life, and the letter, he's referring to the law, when he says the letter, the letter will kill you, okay? It'll kill you, it'll, because that's the, basically the, the Mosaic law, when it pointed out sin, it ultimately it condemned the sin of men, and no one could purify themselves and protect and 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 you know perfect themselves by simply the adherence of a law. It's just simply it's an impossible thing, and uh, and that's that's the whole issue uh, that we see taking place here. And again, Peter in verse ten here he's basically admitting um, the failure of the Jewish people, his own failure to be able to fulfill that law. Now there are several points that we see from verses six to verse ten, and basically. You know, basically, you know, if God overruled the Mosaic requirements and gave His Spirit, um, He approved believing Gentiles. You know, the point is, well, who are we to reject them? If God approved them, God gave them the Holy Spirit, who are we? And then he goes on to say, you know, keeping religious rules can also become a pride issue. You know, it's sometimes, you know, that's where self-righteousness comes in when we feel... And the other thing, too, you know, when that happens to somebody, you know, when they feel that they've really measured up and they've worked hard at, you know, being a perfect person. Now, in any, no way am I condoning a license to just, you know, slough off and do nothing and, and live in a sinful way. We're not condoning that. But we're just simply saying you cannot perfect yourself. It is absolutely impossible. And when someone tries to do that, all it does is, you know, it puffs up. Um, and someone feels, you know, that, well, I'm righteous, and what happens is you begin to measure other people. You begin to look down your nose at people because you feel like, you know, well, I've, I've done it. I've kept it. You know, what's wrong with you? And so, again, it feeds the ego. It feeds the pride, and it's a distortion because self-righteousness is a Pharisaical kind of a thing, um, and, uh, and all it does is, is be divisive, uh, where someone feels that there may be just a better person or more holy. Uh, like Isaiah said, you get this idea, I'm holier than thou. You know, I'm holier than you kind of a thing. And, you know, what's your problem, you know? Um, you, know you start uh, looking at people in a, whole, in a very critical you know, kind of way. Uh, also, too, the Scripture demonstrated that Israel couldn't fulfill the law, but nor could any human being. No one. They were just, in a sense, they were just a demonstration of it. It wasn't that, you know, they couldn't fill it. Okay, we're going to do it, you know, kind of a thing in and of ourselves. Well, we can't. Romans 8 says this, and again, this is Paul writing in Romans 8, and in verses 3 and 4 he says this. Uh, He's explaining here, he says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, for our human nature, we couldn't do it, Okay. He goes on to say God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Now notice verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's fulfilled in us because of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes into our life, when he comes into our heart. Uh, In Romans 13... In verses 8 through 10, Paul will say this a little bit later. He says, O no man anything except love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Interesting, isn't it? Isn't it so interesting? He goes on to say, For the commandments, this is a you know, partial list of the Ten Commandments you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not, you shall not bear false witness or lie, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying: namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now remember when Jesus was dealing with the, the uh you know, with the Pharisees? Okay. And they're always challenging him. They're always looking at some kind of way to maybe throw him off uh, as they question him because they were oftentimes, they were lawyers. They were scribes and lawyers. They knew, in other words, they penned out the scriptures. They were familiar with the scripture. And, and Jesus, one time facing off with them, he says, and he reduces the Ten Commandments to two because all the law is fulfilled in this. And that was something that that every, any teacher, any rabbi would always try to do, always to sum, sum up, always to sum up, always to condense, you know, all these truths and to bring them, you know, into a succinct kind of a statement. And Jesus said, all the commandments are filled. That 613 commandments are filled in these two commandments. To love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what Paul's simply saying here. The law is fulfilled. Because, you know, when you love somebody, you're not going to do them harm. You're going to be looking out for their interest. You're going to be caring about them. You're going to be thinking about them. You're going to be praying for them. But it's not always an easy thing to do, is it? Isn't it so easy to love the Lord? Wee! It's great. Love the Lord, eh? But Lord, love that person? <laughs> that individual and it's only by the grace of god and by the work of the holy spirit can we do that because there are some real sandpaper people not just out there but in here okay you know we can we can have our our moods you know we can have our issues um we're all a little bit different sometimes you know, folks are not walking with the Lord. They're believers; they, they know the Lord, but maybe they're not walking the way. Um, you know, one of the one of the one of the most hurtful things in Christianity is when you're wounded by another believer, because it it, it kind of catches you off guard, because you expect it out there, okay. You expect it out there in the world, but to be hurt, to be wounded, to be taken advantage of, to be exploited by another Christian it kind of catches us unawares, and we can really wrestle with that and struggle with that. Just Sometimes we find it hard forgiving one another more than we do that person out there that doesn't know Christ you know that maybe a person in the neighborhood or the workaday world or whatever a relative that doesn't know Christ and they, well well they they you know they don't know you know but sometimes when it comes to you know forgiving one another being hurt by somebody who knows the lord and and professes to love the lord that's a challenge but there's grace for that there's grace for that and and particularly maybe if you find yourself Dealing with that kind of issue, you just got to keep giving it to the Lord until you get set free, until the love of God just you know fills your heart and fills your life. Um, there, have been, there have been some of my deepest wounds to be to be hurt by other, from other believers, but thank God for His marvelous healing grace. You know, at work to work that change. You know, so again, love does not does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love. Is the fulfillment, and again, that's so succinct, and isn't that just so on point? Because you know, when you think about well, six hundred and thirteen laws, I can't keep them. You can't. Even I can't keep Ten Commandments. <laughs> I struggle with them, but they're a guide. They're, they're a guide. that remind us, remind us of our shortcomings. Remind us of we need to rely upon Him, right? We need more reliance, you know, upon the Spirit of God that has come into our life. And he says he'll empower us. Uh, you know, just because the Spirit of God has come into our life doesn't mean we're going to have just the wherewithal, you know, to conquer every issue and take care of every problem and that sort of thing. I wish it was like that. I wish it was like that uh, kind of a thing. But it's, just, it's an ongoing reliance and a dependence upon him in every situation, every circumstance. Because so, so many things come up and you feel like, you know, you feel like you feel incapable you feel inadequate. And and we are. We are in the natural. But as we trust Him and as we look to Him for whatever the present situation would require, He'll impart that. He'll give that. And He just wants us to, to trust Him and look to Him for that. The other thing that I saw here in these verses 6 through 10 is that again, you know, uh, it, it's basically He's done that. He's done that on, on our behalf, and we need to keep looking to Him. Now, in verse 11, uh, he, he clearly states something that must have been revolutionary, again, to their old way of thinking, because, again, if, if we're not Jews, okay? But if we were under that particular orthodox system, it would be, it's all about performance. And that's why when you look at even the disciples, you know, it took time. It took time for them to get free from the constraints of this performance kind of relationship you know with God to be, to be free you know from those kinds of things so he goes he says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we shall be saved uh, in the same manner as as basically they are saved and, and and so it's very important to you know to these these particular issues I think I think pastors and ministers and ministers some Sometimes as they may you know, definitely talk about grace, and they believe in grace, but sometimes they practice law because I think, not all or even most, but in some situations, pastors are afraid to teach grace because it can be abused. It can be abused. It can be taken advantage of. Oh, you mean if I can sin and God will forgive me? <laughs> Wee! I can go do what I want to do and just get get forgiven just like that. That's an abuse of grace. Because I think if you got the Spirit of God in your heart, you know, man, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to. I don't want to go. You know, living in sin. I don't want to. I don't want to go back to the way it was. You know, in my life. You know, before Christ. So it's very easy in a sense. You know, when when. Uh, you know, when, when God comes into your life, it's, a, it's an easy kind of a thing to abuse grace. I think, I think, if anything, we see that in Christianity at large in our world today. Just, just an a, a abuse uh, of grace. Uh, I can do whatever I want to do. You know, I'm a Christian. I got freedom. You know, the Bible says, you know, if Christ sets you free, you're free indeed. So I'm free to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, and don't anybody tell me any different. I've seen, I've seen Christians like that. I've seen that kind of mentality that's out there. And, and I really believe that if we're really walking with the Lord and want God's will in our life, um, we're not going to want to be abusive. We're, we're not going to want to go, you know, want to go sin. Uh, sometimes in counseling, you know, I've I've, I've, caught, I've picked up this attitude in counseling Different times where people say, "Yo, yeah, I, I know it's wrong, but I want to do it anyway." You ever thought that? No, never. never. Oh, <laughs> we are holier than thou. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. You, you, you know what to do, but you, you, know, you don't want. To, you know, you're not going to do it. Sometimes it's not, sometimes with a believer, you know what it can be with us? Passive disobedience. Not high-handed rebellion. Ah. But it can be sometimes a passive kind of a disobedience, you know. It's like, God ain't looking, I'm going to do it, you know, kind of a thing. You know, kids are like that with their parents sometimes. You ain't looking, I'm going to do it. But I think also, too, you know, when it comes to this, you know, a whole uh, matter of, uh, there can be a preaching, you know, just a, a, a slavish kind of uh, obedience to every jot and tittle of tradition, okay? It's extra-biblical kind of stuff. And again, uh, there have been religious groups, and still are today, where ministries and pastors want to control people. And one thing is you should discover you can't do that. Doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. I think it becomes kind of somewhat, somewhat cultic. And here's the thing is I trust the Holy Spirit and his grace in your life to prompt you, to guide you, to, to direct you. Uh, You don't need me standing over your shoulder. I think also, too, as parents, I think, you know, we have to be able um, to allow our children to fail, to allow them to make mistakes. Uh, One of the things that you will find if you ever had somebody in your life like this, and they're over your life, and they're, you know, constantly critiquing you, of right and wrong, and you do everything they want you to do, but you resent it. You just resent it because it's not—it's not from your heart. It's not an obedience that's prompted. It's an obedience that's demanded externally. And I think sometimes that can happen in families. I think that can happen with children. I think it's easy to ha- for it to happen with children because we, as parents, we love our kids. You know, we want them to do right. Um, but we have to give them some latitude, you know, to make to make choices, to make decisions, to, to make mistakes, to not be just sort of jeering, you know, just sort of jeering at them and, um, you know, uh, over their head with every little, you know, every little decision because we don't want them. You know, as good Christian parents, we don't want our kids to make the mistakes that we make. But the fact of the matter is they're going to make their own mistakes, and they're going to make plenty of them. And, and by the grace of God, we have to just sort of, you know, allow them that latitude, you know, by the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and I trust you guys. We, we, we trust you guys, like, for instance, um, when, uh, when COVID came, because before COVID came, we would take an offering. And it's always easy to remember you need to give when, a ba- when, when the bag goes underneath your nose. But because of COVID, we stopped doing that, and we're not going to do that again. But you know what, we know, know what blew our minds is that people prompted by and led by the Holy Spirit, they were, just, you know, they were just sending their checks in and that sort of thing without us saying, really saying anything other than the fact that, yeah, we've got boxes back there if you want to give to the Lord. And you know something? The fact is we really didn't suffer any loss. And I think churches make a mistake when they are constantly haranguing on money. I think it's a mistake. We had a fellow come in many years ago. His name was Chuck. I want not share his last name. He was looking for a church, he and his wife, and he said, uh, you know, the last church I was at, um, the pastor... Second time I was there, a pastor took me in the office, and he asked me how much money I was making, and he told me I need to give ten percent of that to the church. That 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 goes on, that kind of stuff goes on. <laughs> and uh, I think it's harmful. I think it's harmful because you're being forced. Grace sets us free. The marvelous grace of God to respond to the Lord. You know what I discovered? By allowing the grace of God to work in people's hearts, they do more than you ask them. Now, Paul and Barnabas testify in verses 12, and they're basically sharing the miracles all the things that God had done. And, and if anything, for sure, Jews knew about miracles because they had a miracle history. They understood that. Remember, Paul says at one point that the Jews, um, they want a miracle, and um, the Gentiles, you know, they want wisdom. Okay, I think he says that in Corinthians chapter, first Corinthians chapter two, about what you know what different groups relate to the the, the Western world because of uh, the great philosophical age and so forth. You know, give them some kind of gem of wisdom and so forth and that sort of thing. Or eloquent speaking uh, for the Jew, it was a miracle, and so uh, that's why when you see Paul and Barnabas going to these synagogues and going to these places, man, God is just moving. God is saving people. God is healing people. God is working. We've seen a number of those kinds of accounts. And, and again, simply for them, this was, this, was, this was evidence. But you know something? There's no greater miracle than a changed heart. Man, that's the greatest miracle. You see somebody change the way they think. The whole trajectory, you know, of their life is just wonderfully changed. That's the real miracle, I think. And they're basically, you know, declaring hell. Many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So James here in verses 13 delivers the, the, the verdict uh, James would later become what is called the Bishop of Jerusalem. Um, he was the half-brother of Jesus, actually. He, um, uh, same mom, but uh, uh, Joseph as a father, um, he, um, they discovered when he died that his knees were so calloused, like the knees of a camel, because of his prayer life, and uh he was a real spiritual guy, and, uh, and so he's going to speak here, and he says, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, has declared how God has first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets agree, for it is written, and he's quoting here from Amos chapter 9, after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I'll rebuild the ruins, I'll set it up so that the rest of mankind... And to clarify that, if they didn't get it from Amos, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, known to God from eternity are all his works. So in other words, when God came to save the Gentiles, it wasn't his default position, okay? It wasn't because, well, things didn't work out, you know, with Israel kind of a thing. It wasn't that at all. Um, It was God's plan all along. We've talked about this. We've discussed that, you know, how uh, back in Genesis chapter 12, when he basically says, you know, uh, Abraham, as he calls Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is what Jesus does. He takes ruined lives, he rebuilds them, he restores them, and you know what? He doesn't live in a building, he lives in a human heart. That was the whole purpose of the tabernacle eventually, uh, uh, initially, and then the, tab- the temple later was that basically, you know, here is God dwelling in the midst of his people, okay? But again, it was, a, it was an educational tool to basically where God would say eventually, and he does say it in the prophets, he says, you know, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. You know, my spirit is going to come into your life. That's what God wants. That's what God has designed. I don't care who the person is, and I don't care whatever they think, the purpose of our creation is that our Creator would inhabit our lives. That God would come into our lives. Life is empty, aimless, frustrating, and ultimately a defeat. If the Spirit of the living God, if Christ is not in your heart, not in your life. That's the whole purpose. That's the whole purpose of our creation. And that's why, in a sense, hell is simply this. It's a place where you don't want God, OK. There it is. There it is. And that's why God so incredibly reveals himself as a God of love and is so patient and so kind and keeps working in a person's life. You know, the Bible says, now is the appointed time. Now is the day of salvation. Everybody has that moment. Everybody has that, that moment, that opportunity that Christ might come into their life. And it's so transformational. I honestly do not think I would be alive if it were not for Christ. I just don't think I would be. I might have drunk myself to death by this point. Who knows? But he has called you and me, you, you, you unique creation. <laughs> and we are. Isn't it amazing that everybody's got different fingerna- fingerprints? That we all have eyes, but yet they're structured in such a way that you can identify people by their pupil. is crazy? You're a unique individual creation of God. But you're not just created for yourself. You're created for Him to enjoy him forever that's what heaven's about just enjoying him forever and ever and ever and ever <laughs> so we're going to end here we're going to wrap this up these next couple of verses here the impact of this decision was huge you know would it be law is that how we're going to relate to god okay here's the checklist <laughs> Or would it be grace? Would it be this free gift of grace? But we can't control that. Exactly right. The Holy Spirit wants to control you. He wants to come into your life. Yeah, I'm not going to take away your identity. And isn't it interesting, the Holy Spirit in this scripture is likened to a dove. You ever have a dove land in your backyard? You know, we have it all the time. And it's such a gentle creature. And God's not going to force, you know, he doesn't force people to get saved. He doesn't force people, you know, for, you know, to, you know make us absolutely wretchedly miserable. He gives us choice, he gives us the freedom. What a privilege, what an honor that is. So here, what, what James says, therefore, I judge that we should, know, should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them. These three things, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled and from, and from blood. The Gentiles basically, you know, they come from these pagan backgrounds with all these different immoral, unsafe, unhealthy practices. And and, and that's what, in a sense, I think he's sort of leading on, leading to and touching. And one of them was idolatry. That was the primary, when you think about it, outside of Judaism, okay? Everything else was idolatry. and there was a pantheon of gods. You had Aphrodite, okay? We know what Aphrodite is, right? The goddess of sex. Then you have Bacchus, the god of drinking. Then you have Ares, the god of war. Uh, You have Zeus, the weather god, okay? Uh, You have Hades, you know, the, the, the ruler of the dead. And there was a host of other ones as well. And so whatever the issue was in life, you would appeal to that particular god, Remember, Paul gets to, we'll see it, he gets to to Athens and there's an altar to the unknown God. Isn't it interesting that as you look at our culture, as we find more and more a rejection of the Judeo-Christian ethic, a move gradually, progressively back into paganism. We see it. We see it in our world. And of course, the... the, uh, the next thing would be sexual immorality. That was big in the ancient world. That, that was big. If you went to the temple of Di, you know, uh, Diana or any, any temple in the ancient world, uh, there were female prost, uh, uh, priestesses there who were prostitutes. And so he's basically saying some of, the, some of your translations may, instead of say, say sexual immorality, they actually use the word fornication. Uh, the Greek word is porneia. It's okay, even referenced here. It even covers the area of pornography. And uh, and the world was, you know, the world of that day was a very, very unhealthy place. You know, the, you think about all the different um, um, sexually transmitted diseases. You know, so many people, you know, died from these things in antiquity in the ancient world because it was just accepted. It was just, you know, part of the normal way of living. And we're moving back to that. We're moving back to that. Then he says this here, you know, things strangled him from blood. Boy, that, well, that sounds crazy to us, doesn't it? Okay. But particularly for the Jew, there was in Leviticus 17, and I think it was Deuteronomy chapter 12, there were strong warnings against it because blood basically symbolized the life itself. It was, it was, a, it was, it was in a sense it was set apart, it was sanctified, um, and I think the prohibition, more than anything, is a safeguard relative to health. It's interesting too, because I think in in, in part of the law in Exodus, uh, I remember a doctor—I forget his name—a Christian doctor—wrote a book called "None of These Diseases," and and he was basically saying how in the law there was a prohibition, you know, to Israel to not do certain things, and 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 basically. That's what Moses says, that none of the diseases of the world will be upon you. And the interesting thing about blood, the interesting thing about blood, you know what, it carries all the viruses, carries all the STDs, carries all the cancers. And uh, and again, this may, it's interesting too because, you know, I was thinking, well, how would this relate to what might be even going on today? Do you know that there the the uprise of vampirism. Yeah. I was just reading an article in the the Guardian. It was actually very informative. That uh, the, the, there's a, a group in one city, Atlanta, called uh, the uh, uh, the vampire. Oh, I, I forget the title of it now. But it's a, it's a vampire group, vampire alliance, I think it is, uh, in in uh, in all, or um, Atlanta, Georgia. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it. And they don't, They said, we, we don't really bite one another, but we just make a deep surgical incision, and that's how we get our blood. I know, it seems crazy. It seems crazy. You know, my grandmother came from Ireland. She, uh, she came actually uh, over in like 1918, 1919, and she came from Tipperary, and she lived on a farm, and they raised crops, and they had animals and, you know, animal husbandry and all that. And, and I remember her telling me one time, she said, you know, when the men would harvest the pigs uh, and the hogs, they would, as soon as they cut their throat, they would put a mug underneath the neck of the pig and drink the hot blood. You know, there's a lot of places in the world they still do that stuff today. <laughs> And I think for Israel, I think for Israel, it was a safeguard. The Gentiles did all these things. Um, Because I don't think there's a prohibition here so much, you know, for you and I to have a juicy steak, you know, medium rare. I don't think that's the issue here at all. Uh, When he talks about, you know, things strangled and so forth, in the ancient world, that's what they often do it. Um, And I often thought about about meat cutting and and butchering because I have a good friend that he had a slaughterhouse. And when you look at all of the, when you look at the Levitical priesthood and all that they knew and all that they learned about the sacrificing of animals, I think, if anything, they probably passed that on. Uh, you know, to the Gentile world eventually on, on how to, you know, how to really butcher an animal. You know, when you, when you kill an animal, you drain all the blood out of it. But no matter what you eat, there's still going to be a certain degree of blood in it. And so I think the prohibition here is you Gentiles, be careful you don't stumble your Jewish brethren. And I think, other, I think the other thing too is basically uh, to, the, to the Jewish believers... Don't think that you're superior because you don't do a lot of these things that these Gentiles do. So again, here we see just, you know, just the the grace of God at work, you know, to to bless his people, to protect his people, to not lay this big yoke of bondage, you know, upon these new believers. But you know what? Just entrust them. Entrust them to the Holy Spirit. Do you ever lead somebody to Christ? And they moved away. Kind of wonder, oh, man. Because, you know, sometimes you see, you see some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they, they don't fare very well over the course of time. Some people fall away. And you meet this person you led to Christ 10, 20 years ago, and there they are, man. They're with the Lord. They're, they're, they're walking with Christ. And it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Grace will wonderfully keep us the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How good he is, how gracious he is. And you know what, we want to communicate that, don't we? We want to share that with other people. Not about keeping, not about rule keeping, not about jumping through religious hoops. You just start by just giving your life to Christ. Because you know what? He's the one that cleans us up. Amen. He's the one that sets us free. He's the one that does that glorious, incredible work. As we close in prayer, if there's anybody here that perhaps you're sensing God's call in your life maybe you never maybe never made that decision sometimes when it comes to a decision like that, which I think is the most important decision in all of life, to commit yourself to the Savior, to give your life. It's kind of like, in a sense, draw, you know, driving a stake in the ground. If you want to do that, stand up. I want to pray for you. If you want to do that, please stand up. Okay, you're all saved. Father, praise you. Thank you for the freedom that we have in our dear Savior. Lord, he's the Savior of the world. And Lord, we pray that as you have wrought in us, as the Lord, you have changed us. Lord, sometimes we we look at others and we think how impossible it is that you could change that person. But Lord, we forget how impossible we looked. So Lord, give us, we pray, give us those, those eyes to see, that ability to just believe and trust that you're the same God as you worked a miracle in our lives, to work a miracle in the lives of those that you send us to. We thank you for the cross, Lord. We thank you that you rose from the grave. Thank you for the power that you grant to us, just average, regular, ordinary people. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.